Entangling Vines, Case 24, Not Entering Nirvana. In the Mahaprajna Sutra, preached by Manjushri, it says, virtuous practitioners do not enter nirvana. Precept-breaking monks do not fall into hell. Good morning. It's wonderful to see you all. It's wonderful to be able to connect in this way using this electronic medium so we can be together even though many thousands of miles are between us. And uh, I can't help myself as seeing or feeling that somewhere Joshu Roshi is also connected, not just as one of the participants, but with all of us, with all of our hearts. No electronics are needed. So please today during this talk, feel free to move, feel free to rustle, whatever it is. It's uh, even though it is the formal treatment of a koan from the Schumann Katoshu from the Entangling Vines connection. Uh, please don't feel too formal about it. So it's always difficult. And at the same time, I would say it's also easy to give a talk like this because it's not a matter of choice. As part of my assignments in the role that I'm playing within the Zen Studies Society, uh, it is my duty to go through a specific koan collection case by case. So it happens to be case 24 today. And guess what? The next time it will be case 25. If I like it or not, it will be the case that is just coming up. So this is case 24. And I barely have scratched 10% of the entire collection. The Shumon Katoshu is over two, it's about 280 or so cases. It's substantial. It is very long compared to the other collections of koans that we know of in the Rinzai tradition. I am sure we are all familiar with the Mumonkan, the gateless barrier, with its 47 slash 48 cases, and the Hikiganroku with 100 cases. This is 280 plus, but it is a little different. It's a little different than both the Hikiganroku and the Mumonkan by the fact in the Shumon Katoshu, you find only the case itself. It's only the Honsoku, just the case, no preamble, no commentary after. So that's a very interesting 
thing to say about the entangling vines. The, there are many commentaries on the Mumonkan and on the Hekigandroku, but you will find very little on the Shumon Katoshu. But there are overlaps as well. The Shumon Katoshu has many of the cases that you find both in the Mumonkan, in the Hekiganroku, but also the Shoyoroku and, and other collections of koans. And I have made it myself homework to learn how to read those cases in the way that Joshu Roshi would have read them. It's my expression of gratitude to him. We all, most of us remember him sitting in the high chair, reading the case, reading the Diamond Sutra, reading the Rinzai Roku, and then hearing the translation. It's part of the duties of somebody who uh, fulfills a, a function like I do at the Zen Study Society to learn how to do that. It's part of the traditional training and it's a, it's a wonderful thing because it brings me close to understanding what kind of training Yoshiroji has gone through, what kind of training his predecessors have gone through, what kind of training the currently living Japanese Roshis have gone through. That is the Shumon Katoshu, entangling vines. Now, of course, vines uh, grow all over and the entangling vines means it's the words, it's the explanations, it's the koans themselves in which we entangle ourselves by thinking about it, by not being able to free ourselves from the vines. But what's also important to know and to recognize is even though they might entangle us, they are alive as well. Vines live, vines grow. So let me see. It is a portion that we have here that is quoted from the Mahaprajna Sutra as preached by Manjushri. You can find the entire Mahaprajna Sutra, and this is in the first fascicle of it. Uh, Virtuous practitioners do not enter nirvana. Precept-breaking monks do not fall into hell. Yesterday, I went down to the bookshelf in our living room and I picked off the first edition, the first issue of the magazine Zero off the shelf. And the Teisho that Joshu Roshi has in there is a Teisho treating case 23 of the Mumonkan. And it is uh, the sixth ancestor saying, do not think good, do not think evil. Where at this moment is your original face? Honrai no memmoku. And there is a parallel between these two cases. Both of them speak to the two-dimensional world and our human mind creating such a two-dimensional world. Hell and heaven 
are as oppositional as good and evil are. And many koans actually speak about that. In, in the Shumon Katoshu, just a few cases before this case, case 13 also deals with health. And let me just tell you what it says. Sai Rochu asked Joshu Jushin. Joshu Jushin is the Joshu with Mu, with the puppy, whose lips were emanating golden light in whatever he said. So Joshu Jushin was asked, have any of the sages ever fallen into hell? They're the first ones to go there, replied Joshu. But they are enlightened teachers, said Rochu. Why would they fall into hell? Well, if I didn't fall into hell, how could I help you? Joshu answered. Maybe our Joshu Roshi is waiting for us in hell. We better take a trip there one of these days. I'm pretty sure it's not that far from where we are right now. And to illustrate that, I wanted to share with you two stories that you can find in the Zen flesh, Zen bones of Nyogen Senzaki and Paul Reps that speak about hell. And the first one is even more so suited for this occasion because in its the main teacher in this case is Dokuon Joshu. Ogino Dokuon was one of the Rinzai Zen teachers during the Kishaku Haibutsu when Buddhism was persecuted uh, at the beginning of the Meiji era. And he is one of the Rinzai masters who helped Rinzai Zen Buddhism to emerge out of this era so that we actually have it available to us here. And here's the story. It also involves Yamaoka Teshu. Yamaoka Teshu is a famous samurai of the Bukumatsu period. And he also, he played a big role in the Meiji Restoration. He's also noted as the founder of the Itto Shoden Muto Ryu School of Swordmanship. So I know we have some swordmen amongst us. That is Yamaoka Teshu. And he was a Zen student, as so many students of the martial arts. And he visited one of the masters after another. And Dokuon was the abbot of Shokokuji at the time. And our swordsman went there to show off his attainment. He said, appearing in front of Dokuon, the mind, the Buddha, and sentient beings, after all, do not exist. The true nature of phenomena is emptiness. There is no realization, no delusion, no sage, no mediocrity. 
There is no giving and nothing to be received. Dokuon, who was smoking quietly on his long bamboo pipe, said nothing. Suddenly, he whacked him with the pipe. The samurai jumped up, very, very angry, just about to strike Dokuon, to which the master said, if nothing exists, where did this anger come from? Every time I find a story like this, every time I find something in this Rinzai tradition after Hakuin, it is so delightful and heartwarming to see the connection with the blood lineage of that, that we all have. You know, Dokuon Joshu transmitted Vanryu Zenzo, who is the grandfather teacher of Joshu Roshi. Vanryu Zenzo transmitted Joten Soko. Joten Soko transmitted Kyozan Joshu. This is being exposed to family stories. So here's the second one. It's, an, uh, it's about another soldier. We are now many, many years before that in the time of Hakuin, Hakuin Eikaku. Lived, if you are a musician, it will tell you something. If you are uh, a, a connoisseur of Western music, it's about the time of Johann Sebastian Bach. That is the time of Hakuin. So the next time you hear music by Bach, uh, you can think about that he could have gone and visited Hakuin. They lived about the same time, 16, uh, yeah, 1600s, let's say, is about the ballpark. So here is a story about Hakuin. A soldier by the name of Noboshke came to Hakuin and he asked him, is there really a paradise and a hell. Hakuin looked at him. Who are you? He inquired. I'm a samurai, said Nobushke. You? A soldier? exclaimed Hakuin. What kind of ruler would have you on duty in his army. Your face looks like the face of a beggar. Nobusuke became so angry that he started to draw his sword. And Hakuin continued, Ah, oh, you got a sword. It's probably so dull you, could, you couldn't even chop off my head. As the samurai pulled his sword, Hakuin remarked to him, 
here opens the gate to hell. The samurai stopped and returned the sword and bowed deeply to Hakuin, who replied, here open the gates of paradise. So we can see from these stories that heaven and hell, paradise and hell, Nihan, Nirvana and Jigoku, hell, are a topic for a very, very long time. And many religions, world religions, have made a pretty strong run on banking on heaven and hell. And those of us who have sat through many, many tastes of Josu Roshi will also remember that he mentioned heaven and hell on several occasions, sometimes remarking there are no restaurants in hell and there are no bathrooms in heaven. It all seems cryptic if we think in a two-dimensional way. But when we sum all of it together, it comes to the teaching that there is no separation. If this is like this, then that exists. And as long as this and that exist, neither of them is perfect. That's why you cannot go to a bathroom in heaven. That's why you can't go and dine out in hell. So for that, heaven is, is, is a topic that is very well treated, but not so much the topic of hell. That's why I would like to spend just a little time uh, looking at the Google map of the hell realms in Buddhism. In traditional Buddhism, in the scriptures, in the Pali Sutta Pitaka, there is a description of what's called Naraka, which are the hell realms. There's a whole sutra, it's the Devadatta Sutra, which is part of the Majjhima Nikaya, number 130. That's, for example, goes into considerable detail about the various types of hell. And it speaks about the torments, torm the people being tormented, and especially to a person uh, by the effect of their own karma. It's really gruesome stuff. On television, it would be, if you would put a, a screenplay to it, it, it would be probably rated in a way that uh, you, you can't show it to anybody who is faint of heart. So wrongdoers are pierced with hot iron, sliced with axes and burned with fire. But also there are hells that are even worse than that. They are cold hells. The ice hells, when you look at some of the paintings that you see in the Tibetan art, you can see those ice hells. The ice hells are described as frozen, desolate plains or mountains where people must dwell naked. 
Here's the list of the ice hells, if you want to take a ride there. There's Arbuda, the hell of freezing while the skin begins to blister. Nir Abuda, the hell of freezing while the blisters break open. Atata, the hell of shivering. Hahava, the hell of shivering and moaning. Kuhuva, the hell of chattering teeth and moaning. Utpala, the hell where one's skin turns as blue as a blue lotus. Padma, the lotus hell where one's skin cracks open like a lotus blossom. And Maha Padma, the great lotus hell where one becomes so frozen, the body falls into pieces. And then you're not done. This is just the entry into the hot hells. The hot hells is really something that we can experience with our global warming and the climate change more often than we want. The first one of the hot hells is Samjiva, where you will be revived after you had fallen apart in the ice hells. So just so you can experience everything with the proper uh, attention. Samjiva, the hell of reviving or repeating attacks. Kala Sutra, the hell of black lines or wires used at gui as guides for saws. Samgata, the hell of being crushed by big hot things. Raurava, the hell of screaming while running around on burning ground. Maha Raurava, the hell of great screaming while being eaten by animals. Tapana, the hell of scorching while being pierced by spears. Pratapana, hell of fiercely scorching heat while being pierced by tridents. And Avici, hell without interruption while being roasted in ovens. Sometimes we might ask, why is it necessary to describe hells in such detail? We don't have to go far to experience hell. Hell as a state of our own mind and our own being is something that is quite familiar to us. When we think back to the basic teachings of the Buddha, we will remember the three marks of all existence, the three lakshana. Anicca, mujo in Japanese, which is impermanence. Anatta, muga in Japanese is the no-self. And of course, dukkha, ku, or kurushi, or kurushimi, kurushimu, bitter, actually. The suffering, not being able to be ever content.
And all of this comes into play as we have been taught in Tathagata Zen through Joshu Roshi. As soon as a fixated self, a self that abides comes into existence, we get to experience these three marks of all existence. Bitta is such an interesting word, kurushi, bitterness. The bitterness of experience can go away without the experience having to be any different. And we experience it in Zazen very often. When we sit, remember when we started our first sittings, whenever that was, it was very difficult. Often I say the only thing that Zen practice can guarantee you is that your legs will hurt, your back will hurt. And that is one of the really important steps that we become aware of what we are feeling and not only what we are feeling, but what is being built on top of that feeling. Now this goes right into Nehan and Jigoku, goes right into the understanding of Nirvana and hell. When our Zazen feels good, we might feel that we are in heaven. Blissful experience. When our body hurts, we might feel that we are in hell and we suffer. But underlying to this is still the same experience. The experience of what is right now is called in Buddhism tatata, sometimes also called dharmata, shinyo in Japanese, things as they are. And very often when I encounter practitioners, they like to talk about transcending all of this and getting beyond. Many people try to start meditation or to do a spiritual practice to get beyond suffering. And it feels like a, it is like a scaffolding that here is the level of suffering and I want to go above that, that we can get to a place that is somewhere else outside of that suffering, outside of those three marks of existence. And that is just putting another head on the head that we already have. The idea that it is somewhere else is something that you hear about almost on every page when you read the Rinzai Roku. Why are you looking outside? What are you looking for that is not there already? There is nothing to be gained. There is nothing to be lost. 
but what changes is how we relate to that, what is right here in front of our eyes, in front of our senses, in front of our heart. That is the experience of suchness, of katata, of shinyo. My first Zen teacher, Seiyun Gendo Daiosho, he always talked about that. In the early 80s in Austria, and it was a really, really important lesson to understand for his disciples how this mind works, how this separation comes into existence. And Joshu Roshi, of course, has imparted that on Genro. So let's just look at that a little bit, how that works. When there is no distinction, when there is this Kongen no Jyotai, that's what Joshu Roshi called it, the root source the oneness of everything, the emptiness of everything, the universe before being born in its state where it is pregnant with everything, but it has not yet departed. It has not yet pulled apart. It's just polarizing. There's nobody to experience anything. There's nothing to be experienced. There is no conflict. There is no need for equality because there is no distinction. And it's so difficult to talk about that because as soon as we say it is one, then we would indicate there is another. So it's not one and that's why we have learned from Joshua Rossi sometimes to call it zero. And what happens in that state, just going back to the teachings, of the founder of Rinzai-ji, is in that polarity, there is the equal number of women and men. And they gather on opposite sides of it, and they start pulling on that rope that holds everything together. But it's not moving to the right, it's not moving to the left because there is exactly the same strength on the side of the men and on the side of the women. And pulling and pulling, what happens? I know you remember, the rope starts to smoke in the middle and heat starts to form. And at some point, it breaks apart. And when it breaks apart, the central point is it doesn't break into two. It breaks into three. It is then father and mother, and in the middle is the child. That's how Joshua Roshi used to talk about it. In a temporal sense, that's when the present, the past, and the future come into existence. In the world of cognition and in the world of human consciousness, in the steps of the five skandhas, what comes into existence here are the three buckets of I like, I don't like, 
and in between that wide, wide field to which we say sometimes that it is neither like nor dislike. And over time, especially when we look where we live right now, in these times, this is a very important thing to observe, even in the situation here in the United States. What we have learned over the last couple of years is that the polarities are very, very clear. There is no doubt on one side of the, the spectrum of conviction. There is no doubt on the other end of the spectrum of conviction. And they are very fairly narrow, very, and in the middle is all the space that is filled not with neutrality, but in this case, I would say it is filled with indifference. And indifference is what we hear about as the cause for many of the ills of society that persist. It is clear to the racists what they want. It is clear to the anti-racists what they want. But in the end, what is in between the folks who are indifferent are then in the end who continually enable the existence of that ill. We also learn to apply that to ourselves and we see that everything that affirms this I am self, this fixated self is experienced as, oh, that's nice. Give me more, give me more. That what negates the self is seen and felt as, oh, I don't like that. I reject that. This is painful. I don't like it. And again, very little feeling for that what we feel neutral to. A very important thing to visit in our practice. What is it that I'm indifferent to? What is it? Why am I indifferent? And from looking at that and from learning from that, we come to be able to leave that realm that only knows those three buckets, those three tags, like, dislike, mm, I don't care and return to the suchness that underlies all of it. And when we say return to, it is that suchness, it or shinyo, is something that is not two-dimensional. It is our human mind that puts those two dimensions into space that is in between on top of it. It is multidimensional. It is to be felt. It is full of intuition. It is full of spaciousness. It is free of time, free of past, present, and future. 
and to enter into that realm. We dedicate ourselves to this kind of practice, letting this I am self experience its existence. And there's an important lesson to be learned here. Always people say, this is so difficult. This is so difficult. Why can't I just sit down and bliss out? There are places you can go for that, but uh, you better not come here. This is difficult because in order to learn and to connect with that self, in order to learn and experience and feel its limitations, we have to run into things. We have to have that experience of subject and object where we stand against it to even be able to feel, to even be able to know, to even be able to sense. And then taking that step to leave that two-dimensional place of good and evil, of heaven and hell. We have to step out of this judgment that constantly happens. Joshua Roshi used to call that two-dimensional place a flat-faced place. Hey, man, Joe. Flat-faced place. Where you are stuck between the polarity. But in Zazen, with the breath and with our cognition becoming like the ripples of the surface of the ocean, we return to that pre-dimensional place of no judgment. The pre-dimensional place of the world of intuition no sekai, where it is not about knowing, where it is not about understanding, where it is not about being able to answer facts, to answer questions, but where the quality of our being resides. And if we don't want to be there where we are, then all the difficulties start as soon as we want to be somewhere else, as soon as our attention and our intention goes in a, into a different place. In this world where people have to have a career to survive, being subjected to the system of capitalism, which is nothing else than a, a little sanitized version of economic slavery, People have to set goals and people have to meet a system that teaches them, that teaches us to be competitive. And competition means to be always comparing. Comparing means judgment. That is exactly the same layer of that good, evil, and I don't care. And sometimes we even shrink then to just what is good for me and by doing that harm, 
not only society, but also our own spiritual being. Even though we might be able to accumulate a good amount of money, we also fall under something that yet another woke or awakened person has said, namely the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about spiritual poverty, which comes right out of that, out of giving up, not even caring for others. Ultimately, that capitalist society that underlies it makes this be that way. And if we follow it through in the Buddhist terms, we will end up in the center of the Dharma wheel that is turning all the time, where we find the three animals, where we find the snake, the rooster, and the pig. Greed, ignorance, and delusion. So why did Manjushri say that good practitioners will not enter nirvana and precept-breaking monks will not go to hell. He could have as well said that anti-racists don't go to heaven and racists don't go to hell. What is being pointed to here very, very importantly is the human projection of good and evil the human judgment of heaven and hell limits us and only creates places that in themselves are incomplete. Why are we doing all of this? Why do human beings engage in spiritual paths? Why do human beings have religion? out of a deep longing for completeness, becoming complete, ideas of God, ideas of divinity come into existence to allow people to feel that completeness. If not in the present, then maybe in the future, the promise of heaven or in certain religions right now. But it is there for the human being to fulfill that need of becoming complete. Why do we look for partners? Again, it's that deep-seated human longing for completeness. And what the practice teaches us, what the ancestral teachers, going back to the Buddha and before, teach us is that it doesn't lie on that surface that is two-dimensional of heaven and hell, of good and evil. 
Now, here's a little provocative thing that I want to tell you. One of the things you have to do, and we have to remind ourselves in this practice is, and this is actually spoken about uh, in Tibetan Buddhism quite a lot, is to give up all hope. What? You're telling me to give up all hope? But I'm coming here in the hope to become more complete. I'm coming here in the hope to awaken. I'm coming here in the hope to receive this or that teaching. And now you tell me, give up all hope. Are you telling me there is no hope? These are two completely different things. Giving up hope is the same as saying, give up all fear. Hope is putting our point of concentration and intention somewhere in the future, somewhere into a place that we want to be. It's not different from fear. Fear is putting our concentration, our experience into a place that is not here, but it's a place we don't want to be. Fear and hope are very, very similar. And of course, heaven and hell and nirvana and hell are also places that are related to fear and to hope. Yet in this practice, we have to give up all hope. We have to give up the looking anywhere else. There's a nice connection here with the Italian writer, Dante Alighieri. Remember, he wrote Inferno. And he writes about himself as a pilgrim embarking on a spiritual journey. And he is guided by the soul of the Latin, the Roman poet Virgil. Dante travels down through the nine circles of hell and witnesses the punishments eternally suffered by the souls of deceased sinners. And do you remember what the sign above the entrance of hell said? As you reach the gate of hell, there is a sign. And that sign says in Italian, Lasciate ogni speranza, voi c'entrate. Let all hope go, ye who enter here. We should take that sign and put it over the entrance of the Zendo. The Zendo is not a place for hope. The Zendo is not a place for fear. Let all hopes go. Now, one more note about the Shumon Katyoshu. I need you, Yonsoku, case 24. Virtuous practitioners do not enter nirvana. Precept-breaking monks do not fall in hell. 
Does it give us license to do what we want? Uh, certainly not. It just reminds us of the responsibility that we have been transmitted by our teachers, by our spiritual ancestors to live up to being right here with suchness, with tatata, to have that self that arises every moment freshly, that is not fixated. And this Zazenkai that we are having today is entitled Hoan Zazenkai. It's a Zazenkai where we give back, where we pay forward at the same time. Hoan Suru means in a very wordy translation, requiting the beneficence. We are paying back through our practice everything, the teachings, the love, the laughter, the attention, the smiles, the reprimands that we have received from Josu Roshi by continuing to practice, by continuing to practice to the best of our abilities, without fear and without hope. And without fear and hope, all that remains is bodhicitta, bodhaishin, that very, very strong determination to continue this practice until we take our last breath. So wonderfully embodied by Joshu Roshi for 107 years. It's up to us to keep that light alive. Joshu's Shitsugo, his room name was Denkyo Shitsu, transmitting the echo, the echo of the Dharma, the great roar of the lion, transmitting it. And the wonderful understanding here is, it is the echo that is transmitted, not the roar itself. Because we all, with our birthright as human beings, are born from that very roar. I want to close this talk by returning to the reformer of Rinzai Zen in Japan, Hakuinekaku. The Hakuin was very well known. And there is the following anecdote about his life and how he wrote a poem referring to this very koan. Seijo no gyosha nihan ni idazu, hakai no bikku. Virtuous practitioners do not enter nirvana. 
precept-breaking monks do not fall into hell. So Hakuin wrote a poem to that. He was a wonderful calligrapher. And so this calligraphy with the poem was hanging up in a place where two priests who had already finished their training with the great Zen master Kogetsu Zenzai. They were going on pilgrimage to find other teachers and to measure their attainment. And so they stopped in this place and there on the wall was the scroll giving this poem speaking about this virtuous practitioners do not enter nirvana and precept-breaking monks do not fall into hell. And the poem reads the following way. Kangi arasoi ku sete no tsubasa. Shin tsubame narabi iko yoryu no eda. Jinpukago tazusaite nairo oku. Sondo takana o nusunde sori o sugu. Silently ants pull at the dragonfly's wing. Young swallows rest side by side on the willow branch. Silk growers' wives, pale in the face, carry their baskets. Village children with pilfered bamboo shoots crawl through a fence. After hearing this verse, after reading it, the two priests decided to find Hakuin and to enter his Doksan room and to become his disciples, inspired by this poem. All it is, is what is. The siren said to Rinzai-ji, the helicopters flying above, the weed whackers and leaf blowers, Donald J. Trump, Mother Teresa, all just as it is, without fear and hope, without heaven and hell, we proceed at the tip of the arrow of time, of the arrow of the traje trajectory of our lives, forward, giving full credit, gratitude, and the deepest imaginable thanks to Joshu Roshi, to all male and female ancestors, to our fellow practitioners, to the Sangha, to the Dharma, and to the Buddha. <laughs>